0: We have been working our way slowly through the first um, 18 verses of John's gospel, and we are already on week three. Isn't that crazy? Christmas is next Sunday. Um, so um, it has been a joy for me, at least, to work, to slowly work through these verses, and I hope that it's been for you too as well. Uh, today we'll be focusing on, in on verses 9 through 13, uh, and the next week, We'll finish up uh, 14 to 18. Now, I'm going to start at verse 1 and read all the way to verse 13. So I'm going to read the whole text um, up until where we are today, but we'll focus in on 9 through 13. So here we go, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right, to start off today, I want to give you a challenge. Um... Every time you see the word believe in any scripture today, I want you to circle or underline it because the word believe is one of the key words in John's gospel. Belief, just a simple word, belief. But our text today in John 1 is a foreshadow to one of the central themes of the whole book of John, that in John 20, John explicitly tells us the reason why, one of the reasons why he wrote this book. So you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it. John 20, 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name so that you may see Christ for who he really is the divine god in the flesh and that when you see him that you would believe now something interesting about the word believe in the gospel of john when the word believe is used in the gospel of john it is never used in a combination in some sort of combination with an adjective or an adverb around it now that's interesting It's always just believe, just believe. Not intensely believe, not with everything that you are believe, not sincerely believe, not just give it a shot and believe. It's just believe. That's it. Now, why is that? Why does the word believe stand on its own in John's gospel? Here's what I think. Because to believe something, at least in the way that John uses the word believe, is to receive something. To believe something in the gospel context of John is to receive something, right? And when you put an adjective or an adverb in front of it, it can give us this idea that we have to do something to contribute to that believing, that we would have some sort of control of it. Like if I said, you need to intensely believe something, right? You need to intensely believe that the Astros are going to win the World Series. I don't know. That's my example, right? If you are going to intensely believe something, it communicates the idea that I have to conjure up something in my heart to make an extra effort. effort. But John's not about that. The Bible wants to squash the temptation in our soul to control the work of God that we all, most of the time, even with good motives, we want to create a God that we have some kind of control over. We, we control the way in which he works, a God that will give us what we think we want. But Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, will remind us that he is not here to externally give us what we desire. And you know this, that Jesus is after, God is after the internal, the internal of our souls, that he wants to transform our hearts, He wants to transform our affections. He wants to transform the very essence of our souls. And he doesn't start with the external, but he goes right to the roots of who we are. So let me just show you a quick example before we jump into our main text. The feeding of the 5,000, right? One of the most well-known stories in all the scriptures. It it is uh, one of, I think, I'm not sure completely sure on this, but I think it's the only story that is in all four gospels. Okay, if not the only, it's one of the few that is in all four gospels. So it's an incredibly important story in the life of Jesus. And if you aren't familiar with it, there are minimum 5,000 people. They're, these people are hot. They've been listening to Jesus teach all day. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, people are hungry. We need to send them away so they can get themselves something to eat. And Jesus, whole other sermon for a whole other day, says, no, you feed them. Don't send them away. He says, you feed them and they're like, oh, what do we do? So they start going out, and they start asking people if they have any food, and they come back to Jesus, and they're like, dude, we got a few fish and some rolls. Like, we got nothing. And Jesus blesses the food, and then all of a sudden, we don't know how, that all works, but all of a sudden, the miracle of thousands of people ate to their satisfaction, and the crowd, in that moment, after they feed him, they are like, okay, this is our guy. I mean they are ready to start a revolution. They're ready to go to Herod's palace and break the walls down, right? And so the crowd is behind Jesus. So Jesus leaves and then in John 6:29 the crowd goes and finds Jesus and here's what he tells them when that crowd comes back to him in John 6:26. He says, "Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill." Of the lobes. Essentially, he says the reason you are following me is not because you love me, but because I gave you something. It's this idea that the crowds are coming to Jesus, not because they want him, but because they think that he can give them external things. They want to use Jesus, not glorify them. And Jesus calls them out in this moment, and it's actually quite uncomfortable. If you imagine that if you were there, he turns to this crowd that has come to him, and he says, you're here because I filled your belly. You don't love me. You aren't here to follow me. You just want something from me. And then look at verse 27 in John 6. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So Don't work for the external, but look to the internal, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God. So they come to Jesus. They don't necessarily have bad intentions, but Jesus calls them out. And when they get busted, they don't deny it, but they try to play at what they think Jesus wants to hear. And his response for most of us, and probably them, is actually incredibly frustrating. Because we as humans, we want to be told what to do. We want to be told how to accomplish something. If there's something that we want, we want to be told how we can get it. What are the steps that I need to take in order to do it? So they're like, okay, well, what what must we be doing then? What are the steps that I need to take in order to get it? And then in verse 29, it says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They ask him, what are the works of God? Tell us what to do, Jesus. And he says, believe. Not intensely believe or just kind of believe. It's just believe. Just believe it. And that concept to just believe something is so hard for us as humans to grab because it's not that simple. You can't just tell yourself to believe something and then it magically happens, right? You just can't make yourself do it. Try to love celery. You just can't do it. You can't do it. Try for 33 years. I still can't do it, right? You can't make yourself just believe. Why? Why is that? Why is it as human beings, we just can't go yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose from the grave and now the Holy Spirit lives in me and I, the best thing that's ever happened to me. Why can't everybody just do that? Right? ever feel that way? The short answer is because the belief that Jesus is talking about here isn't something that you can just do. It's not something that you can just grab. It's something that is received. Something that is received. There is nothing that we can do to grab the grace of Christ for ourselves. And that's where we find ourselves in John 1. So verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. So, verses 9 and 10, and then verse 11, talk to two theological truths, theological terms that I think are helpful here for us to learn. So first is that God, what we see in verses 9 and 10, is that God has been generally revealed to the world. That's specifically what verse 10 is speaking of, God's general revelation, that he has revealed his existence through the created world. This world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, that God is generally No, you may be familiar with Psalm 19 verse 1 where it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, that there is something about creation, that when we see its beauty, when we see the majesty of the handiwork that stirs our hearts to know there is something bigger than me. And look, I'm not really uh, a stand on the side of a cliff and feel God kind of guy. Like, there's many theologians. We have Jonathan Edwards would walk into uh, a forest and he'd come out with little notes. He looked like a pincushion because he would just talk about God in nature. Like, there are many people like that and many of us like that. I remember when I was saved as a teenager, I'd go into the youth group and these girls, teenage girls would be just, I just love being in creation and I, and I just feel God in creation. And I would walk out of that and I'd be like, what a weirdo, right? It just made no sense to me until... I went to Glacier National Park. Anybody been to Glacier National Park? I remember going to Glacier National Park, driving up going to the Sun Road, which, I mean, it is what it says. It feels like you're driving into the sun. And then we went and hiked uh, to Hidden Lake. And I remember for the first time at like age 20 going, oh, this is what Psalm 19 is talking about. It was obvious that there, no person made this. This was masterfully Created. This is the handiwork of something outside of my self. Like, no one gets to the Grand Canyon and feels significant. <laughs> you feel small when you see the mastery of creation and that reality that God has generally revealed himself, that God has generally revealed himself, that someone made this. This isn't here by accident. Paul says in something similar in Romans 1. In Romans 1.20, he says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So he has generally revealed himself, and when we see it, we say, there is something divine about that. Right? That is general revelation. God commuting, communicating to us through the world, and because of that, Scripture says, there is no one that has excuse. No one. That he has generally revealed himself, and so no one can say, well, I didn't know that he existed, because he has generally revealed himself. And by the way, side note, this is why we should all be praying that God raise up folks, you guys, from this faith family to go to the places where he is only generally revealed. That there are places in the world where there is no Bible, there are no churches, there are no Christians. And so, they are generally revealed so they have an ache in their heart that they know that there is something else and that God is raising up the church, the people of God, to go and tell them what the ache in their heart is, that they have been designed for him, they were made by him and for him, and that the ache that they feel can be known through Christ. Does that make sense? So that's side note. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not Receive him. So now, not only do we have general revelation, but we have here is referred to as special revelation that God has chosen to reveal himself through miraculous means, okay? Primarily through the coming of Jesus that God has put on flesh. He came to his own as the idea that he is the owner of the world, he owns the world. He created the world, and he has stepped into his own world. And now the world can see him. They can talk to him. They can physically be with him. And for us, he has specially revealed his word to us, and he has placed his spirit in us. That is a special revelation that we can know things about him. We can know him. We can know God today through his word and through the spirit that God has specially revealed himself to us. That is a miracle that he has brought us from death to life to know him to know what he's like, to know how he interacts with us, to know his friendship and his love. So he came to his own, and his own people did not know him. So he has come to his world, and his people did not receive him. He was rejected. And we have to ask the question, why? If he has been generally known and specially known, then why is he rejected? If you turn a couple pages and go to John 3, Verse 19, John tells us, he says in 319, this is, Jesus tells us, he says, this is the judgment. 319, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's a heavy text. Jesus says, light is in the world, but people didn't even bother with it. Light is in the world, but darkness is loved. And why is darkness loved? If we're honest, it's because darkness tastes too good. That this is all of humanity, trapped in chains by sin, because if we're honest, we love the dark. And dark, the darkness tastes naturally good to us, and light tastes bitter. You cannot love what you hate. You cannot enjoy what tastes bitter to you. And there is something within every person on the planet that is naturally bent to the darkness. And and, and here's the deal, and I'm praying, and I hope that you'll pray with me in this moment, that God would give me gracious and true words in this text. This is a heavy text, because I think when we talk about the darkness, are the wayward ways of the world. Our first inclination is to point our finger out there and go, yeah, see how bad they are? See how bad, see how much they love the darkness? That we look outward. Instead of acknowledging the darkness that is in our hearts, where God has brought us from, and the darkness in our souls, that the depravity of sin is easy to understand when it comes to the way of others, right? We can look out to the world and say, "Go see, they love the dark." But when it's my heart, I tend to push back a little bit and go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" And most of the time in these conversations, it's, "But I'm, I'm a good person." There it is. There it is. That what we've done is we've taken morality and we've replaced it with light. And we think morality means light, and if I'm moral then I'm okay. And we ignore the biblical idea of sin. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you are, if you have rejected him, or let's go deeper than that, you are born into sin. That there is something in us that when Adam and Eve ate from that tree, it broke everything. It broke everything. And it's easy for us to look outward and say, they're bad, instead of acknowledging our own hearts. And there are, and you probably know this, like there are places in the world where you can go, where you can see it, right? You can see, okay, that's evil. Like many of us have probably been to a place where you walked into a room or you walked into a place and you felt the oppression of the darkness. You ever felt like that? Like I've been to places in the world where I felt that and you go, there is something here that is oppressive and you can't see it, but you can feel it and you can taste it and you never forget that feeling. And, and so there are places where you can acknowledge, easily acknowledge the evil. But the darkness of morality and of playing a Christian game is no different than the darkness, or the, the, that evil is no different than the darkness of our own hearts when we try to replace morality or cultural Christianity with salvation. That if I do certain things and don't do certain things, and that buys me a ticket to heaven, but we have to biblically understand this, we have all rejected him. All of us. He came to us and we rejected him. So, yes, we should lament the darkness in the world. The world is dark, it has rejected Christ. And you can see it easily. But we have to acknowledge that we've all, in our own sin, rejected him. That if we aren't aware of our own heart's deception, then man, we're capable of anything. We're capable of anything. I mean, you think about David, right? David, who wrote the beautiful words in Psalm 63, Oh God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And after he writes that, what does he do? He rapes a girl and he murders her husband. That there is something in us still. There's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. So before we go pointing our fingers in a twisted game of morality comparison, we have to acknowledge the reality of our own souls. That there is no place in the Bible where it talks about the need of extra grace for one person over another. You ever seen that in the Bible? It's not there. There's no place in the Bible where it talks about the need of extra grace over one person to another. That we've all come from death to life. We all needed the same miracle that we all have to understand where we've come from, the miracle that has taken place in the salvation of our souls, the salvation of our souls that Jesus came into the world and humanity rejected him. But in the providential plan of God, he has made a way for redemption. And it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, or what you're going to do. If you are his, you are his, and that's the end of the story. And the miracle is that he's brought you from death to life. He's awakened our souls to lift the veil off of our eyes so that we can see him. And now we are aware of our tendency to love the darkness. We're aware of it. And we've got food, we've got water that satisfies our souls to point us to the place where we are designed to be in him. You know, right before Jesus is crucified, he, um, he tells a story to the Pharisees. So go over to Mark 12. I think it'll be on the screen too. Um, but he tells a story to the Pharisees. And this story sums up the entire Bible. Um, he tells them a parable. So I'll start in Mark 12.1. It says, he began to speak to them uh, in parables. And he said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, all of this wording in this parable, is found in Isaiah 5, which is known as the song of the vineyard, where God is portrayed as the planter, and the vineyard is the people of God. So, verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So, in our context and culture, this would be like if you rented a house. Okay, if you rented a house, and your landlord sent someone to collect that rent. You are paying the owner of the house a fee to live there. This would have been understood as a normal thing for the people listening, right? This is a normal contract. So verse 3, it says, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And if you're listening to Jesus tell this story, you're going, no. <laughs> this would be an unbelievable thing to happen. It did not happen in an honor-shame culture. You didn't do that. You didn't disrespect the owner like that, and you did not shame yourself like that. Like, even today, in our culture, in our Western culture, try that with your landlord. They come to collect the rent, boom, what do you think is going to happen, right? It's going to be a bad deal for you. It wouldn't work out well. So the question in everyone's mind is, okay, what is the owner going to do? What's the owner going to do? Because this was unbelievable. Verse 4 it says, again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another one and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the picture here is that all throughout the Old Testament, God would send prophets to speak the words of God to the people of God. And time and time again, they were rejected. God's word was rejected over and over. And so finally, the owner's going to send his son. And if you're in the crowd, the thought is, well, surely they'll respect the owner's son. It's the son. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So Jesus asked the question, verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And he quotes Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here's the best news that you and I could have as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. God did not look at our rejection and decide to cast us aside. God did not walk away sad. He didn't throw his hands up in defeat. In love, he came. That the rejected Christ has now become the cornerstone of our salvation. Everything is built on him. Our hope, our joy, our love, our satisfaction, everything is built on the cornerstone of Christ because he came. Notice the word but in John 1.12. John 1.12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. We've rejected him, but to those who did receive him. Notice that it's not those who take, it's not those who grab, it's not those who work hard enough, it's those who receive him. Now that truth, this two verses tells us a few things. One, you and I did not become believers through our bloodline, right? You know this. You and I did not become believers through our bloodline. You are not born a Christian. No one has been a Christian their whole life. So if you've ever said, "Well, I've been a Christian my whole life," you have not, right? You have not. There was a point when God saved you, when He saved your soul. Your parents' faith is not your, uh, your your parents' faith is your parents' faith, and your faith is your your faith. So you are not born a Christian. God has to work in us all. Second, you are not born by the will of the flesh or will of man. That there is no well. I'm just going to be a better person. That's not going to save you. Your best efforts to clean yourself up will not work. And this is so backwards. When we talk to uh, folks, and maybe that's you, that, that you know, they come to a place like this and they, they know God's working, they want to hear God's voice, they, they want to learn who God is, they want to talk to God, but they say, well, I just got to get rid of this sin first and then, and then I'll get serious about my faith. That's backwards. You don't clean yourself up up first, and then come to him. He comes to you, and he saves your soul, <laughs> and he brings you joy, and love, and hope. The way in the which an individual becomes a child of God is not a natural process. Right? It's not step one, step two. There is one step, and that is God comes. That He comes. It's a divine transaction, a, as a result of a divine initiative. It is something that God does in his grace and mercy. This is, this is uh, Jesus' conversation with, with Nicodemus in chapter 3. He tells him, hey, you must be born again. And Nic- Nicodemus is like, what? Born again? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, we're not talking about being physically born. We're talking about being spiritually born. That salvation is not something that is taken. It is something that is received from God. And when salvation is received from God, it changes everything. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see that language? He gave the right to become children of God. The mercy and grace of God. That though we have rejected him, he has not given us the punishment that we deserve. And more than that, not only has he not poured out his wrath on our sin, but he has shown us grace by adopting us the text in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that you no longer belong to the darkness, but that you belong to the light. And here's the deal. I, I think... This concept is hard for us to understand because God is God, we are not God, and so there is a timidness when we approach God many times. I want you to think about how many of you are parents in here. Do your kids have more rights in your house than I do? Yes, it would be weird if they didn't, right? because they're your kid. They live in your house. They have a different kind of access to you than I do. They have a different kind of access to you than anybody else in the world. And God has adopted you as his son or his daughter. That means you have a right to his love. Just like your child has a right to your love. That you have a different relationship with your God because he has called you his son or his daughter. That means that you can expect that he loves you. You can expect that he's faithful to you because he's a good, loving father. Does that make sense? He has given you the right of adoption, and within that comes an expectation that he be who he says he is. Just like for you mothers and fathers, there is an expectation for you with your child, right? And it's more than just feeding them, (laughs) There is an expectation of love and gentleness and correction. And in the same way, we should expect that of our God because that is, not because we're putting that on him, because that is who he has said that he is. That's what his word has told us about him. And so as children, we should expect that of him. And so when we approach the throne of God, we do it in respect. We do it in honor. And we do it in worship. And we do it in love. And we remind God of who he has said that he is. You look through um, the stories of the Old Testament, many of their prayers, many of the Psalms, is reminding God, not that he needs reminding, but it's the way of praying to say, God, you have said this. And in that moment, the Spirit teaches us more and more about God, that God is working in our reminding of who God is. And the last thing I would say um, is that next Sunday, throughout this week as you prepare for Christmas, and then next Sunday as we get to Christmas, my prayer is that he would remind you that he came, and as a result of his coming and awakening your heart to his grace, that you would remember that you belong to him. All of humanity wants to belong. We want to belong to this, we want to belong to this group, we want, we want, to, we want to belong but god has called you to belong to him and it was an act of grace it was a gift of grace and you don't what well, we don't walk around in despair <laughs> like woe is me but that god has looked at you and he has chosen you and that you belong to him and there's nothing that you can do past present or future that would negate that there's nothing there's nothing Not you you yourself can't even ruin it for you. That if God calls you, if he calls you his son or his daughter, that will never change. Never. You are his eternally. That we would remember that next Christmas, next week. That we are his eternally.